Let us pray for the reading of, um, and preaching of God's holy word. Pray with me. Open our minds to understand your scriptures, O God, so that when sin cripples our hope, we may discover the freedom of your forgiveness. When suffering and death overtake our lives, we may know the joy of the risen Christ, and when we feel abandoned, we may comprehend the power of the promised Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know uh, if any of you have ever had the experience of walking into a room and you have the feeling like everybody's been talking about you. (laughs) I've read about that on the internet. I think we've got a photo. We have a photo. Maybe we don't have a photo. I don't know if I got... Yeah, here we go. It's not a great photo, and uh, those are not, you know, 3D glasses for a movie. Um... Their faces are blocked out for a reason. Uh, On the right is uh, a man by the name of Fazil. Fazil was a committed Muslim in 2001 when his brother returned to the family home in their native Syria, where Fazil lived with his wife, Asia. You see her in the middle. Fazil's brother, who had been living abroad, had a shocking announcement for their family. He had become a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. The whole family was offended that one of their own would reject the religion of their heritage. Azia says, we were true believers in Islam. We were very fundamentalist. A local mosque leader advised Fazil to kill his brother. He said, if you kill your brother, he is an apostate, so you will get a guarantee for yourself that you will enter heaven. Fazil sought to obey the mosque leader's suggestion, and Fazil, one night while his brother was asleep on the sofa in the living room, Fazil slipped into the kitchen and found a knife. And he walked over and stood over the couch where his brother slept. And yet, as he held out the knife, he felt there was an invisible force holding his arm back. And he became frustrated. He didn't know what was happening, so he he walked away and returned to his room. Unable to sleep, a few hours later, Fazil got up and again went into the living room, holding the knife over his Christian brother's 
neck. And yet, again, the same thing happened. It's as if there was an invisible force, he says, holding his arm back. He says, after two days, I tried a third time, and the same thing happened to me. Fazil and Aziab began to examine their faith much more closely. Uh, Aziab said, we would ask questions about what the Quran would say about Jesus and about other scriptures in the Quran that, that didn't really seem to make full sense to us. And, and they wouldn't give us an answer when we'd ask the Muslim clergymen. And then one night in a dream, Azia heard the voice of God tell her that the Christian Bible was a book that would guide their path. And so the couple actually began attending a Christian church near their native town in Syria. Now, they still at this point lived with Fazil's family, a religious Muslim family, and so every Sunday they would have to find a different excuse to slip out and go to church. We've got errands to run. We have to go to market. We've got a business deal to do with, always on Sunday morning, and it wasn't very long before the family figured out what was going on on Sunday mornings. Azia said, we gathered at my family's house. And Fazil stood up in front of everybody and he told my mom, Mother-in-law, I have become a believer in Jesus Christ. Azia's uncles, father and mother, began yelling. They were enraged. They kicked Fazil out of the house. Fazil says, I was expecting death. I was expecting them to kill us right there inside our house. And then they looked, every eye in the room looked at Azia. What are you going to do? And Azia was faced with a difficult decision. She says, I realized that if I stayed sitting on the couch, it was going to prove that I didn't really want this change. And so I prayed, Lord Jesus, give me the strength. And she stood up. She picked up her three-month-old daughter, and she left the house with her husband. She also left behind the hijab, the headscarf that she wore as a modest Muslim woman, and she never wore it again. Fazil drove a taxi for a living. He put a cross on the side of his taxi, and he talked about Jesus, Isa in Arabic, with everybody he could. He'd pass out free New Testaments, CDs of Christian teaching, booklets to his customers, says, some people would advise me, okay, Fazil, you became a Christian. Just keep it in your heart. Don't make it public. The family actually became known throughout their community as followers of Jesus, and life was not easy. Azia says, we struggled a lot. When we'd go to a store and buy something, they wouldn't sell it to us. When we'd be walking along the street, people would spit at us. If I would go to my parents' house for a visit, if there were other guests in the house... They wouldn't even shake our hands as a family. We struggled a lot. And they struggled and shared their faith for more than 10 years in Syria, raising three daughters who loved Jesus while, you know, while surrounded by people who were threatening them. And when civil war broke out in 2011 and the Syrian government was no longer able to protect minority groups like Christians in Syria, life became even more difficult for Fazil and for his family. Azia says this. She says we would receive phone calls 
and they'd say, we're going to stop you. We're going to kill you. The phone rang continually, even through the night. Sometimes their daughters, their little girls, these little girls would answer the phone at their house and hear men speaking obscenities to them. And when Fazil complained to the authorities, the police told him that the calls came from the Islamist rebel-held areas of town and not from areas under regime control. There was nothing they could do about it. The girls were terrified, and Fazil and Asia would reassure them, Jesus loves you, my daughters. Jesus loves you. He will protect you. And Fazil finally decided they would have to move after armed gunmen came to their house when the girls were home alone. Posing as secret service agents, the men entered the house and told the girls that they wanted to talk to their parents. When the oldest girl called the neighbors for help, the men ran away. Later on, the Secret Service officials confirmed that they had sent no one to the house. Fazil opened up his Facebook on his phone one day and found on his own wall a posting from someone calling himself Ali Hamadi. It said this, This infidel, about ten years ago, became apostate from the religion of Islam for the sake of money and Christian extremism. By the name of God, let his blood be shed without impunity. And the one who will shed the blood of this infidel, let him know this is a legitimate act 100%, and that he will be rewarded and will have an eternal recompense. This infidel is trying to propagate the Christian religion among Muslims who have weak faith and souls. The wife of this infidel is also an apostate, and this infidel has sent three girls who are infidels like their father and like their mother. Jesus tells us the path to life involves death. What does Jesus say to someone in a situation like this? What does Jesus say to us when our faith is on the line? We're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter 16. If you want to turn there in your pew Bible, it's page 1524. You can follow along in which Jesus talks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Let's look at the words of Christ. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed on the third day, that he must be raised to life. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Never, Lord! This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If any man would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me, he's the one who will find life. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? 
For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he'll reward each person according to what he's done. I tell you the truth, some of you are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Jesus tells us the path to true life is found in following him. We're going to ask two questions this morning. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And then secondly, how is it possible? What does it mean to follow Jesus? We're going to look at two things that Jesus is saying we have to give up. And then one thing that's really uncomfortable that we have to press into that we'd rather give up. First of all, what does it mean to follow Jesus? He says it means giving up my right to self-fulfillment. Verse 25, he says you have to lose your life to find it. That means renouncing that voice inside of me that says, I can find my life and my fulfillment apart from Jesus. I have a right to be happy apart from Jesus. And if I think something's going to make me happy, then I have a right to it. I deserve it. I, I feel like having it. It makes me feel good, and it should happen. And he's saying you've got to give up that if you want to follow me. Some of you are here, and you're saying, ah, Greg, I knew it. Because you get up there every week and you say that salvation is a free gift, that it's all what Jesus did and not what we do, that it's not something we do to earn God's favor. It's all his grace. It's all his blessing. And he's not going to love you more or less depending on what you do. And now, Greg, you're getting up there, and now I'm seeing the other shoe drop. You've talked about free grace, but now you're presenting the reality that Christianity is a one-size-fits-all moral straitjacket of absolutist rules that takes away all freedom and life and crushes the spirit. And I I hear that, and I want to push back a little bit on that thought, because um, certainly Christianity comes with restrictions, that if you're going to follow Jesus, that means giving up a whole lot of things. I mean, finding your fulfillment through the things that you decide you want and are best for you instead of what he says uh, are actually best for you. And And that certainly involves restrictions, but uh, the real question here is what kind of restrictions are actually going to make us more alive than we were before we knew about them? What kind of restrictions can actually bring out the best in us and make us more than we are right now? You think, for example, we've talked about the runner, the marathon runner this morning, who, you know, they will choose to do something that is very uncomfortable and they don't feel like doing every single day, running and beating their body against the pavement and sweating and burning all sorts of unnecessary calories. And they do it again and again and again and again. And it's painful and it's difficult and it doesn't always feel good. But why are they doing it? Because what that brings about in them is those restrictions, self-imposed, actually bring about newfound freedom, the ability to run miles and miles and miles without tiring and without having to give up. Think about a piano player. You know, I'm I'm picturing like Charlie Brumley when he was five, sitting at a piano, not wanting to practice it. I have no idea if this is a true story. But, you know, plucking away hours and hours of practice, doing what he didn't feel like doing, not doing what he does feel like doing, in order to gain what? That restriction, self-imposed, gaining a freedom to be able to pick up any piece of music and, and jump into it and make amazing sounds and even create new sounds and compose artwork. It's an amazing thing that comes about through restriction. 
Because it's not a question about whether we have restrictions or not. We can't live without restrictions. You know, if, if there's no difference between, you know, uh, you know uh, helping a lady across the street and shoving her in front of a car, if there's no moral right and wrong, we can't live that way. The real question is what kind of restrictions actually grow us in love and actually line up with our humanity and, and help us to thrive and have life. Jesus says, giving that up. Giving up your right to self-fulfillment is a part of what it means to follow Jesus. John Piper gives two contrasting examples in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. The first, he says, consider a story from an edition of, of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who, quote, took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51, and now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shelves. Piper says, at first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke. What is this? The onion? You know, the dream of my life, collecting shells. I've really made it. Is it a spoof? Is it a joke? No, it's Reader's Digest. They don't do spoofs in Reader's Digest. Tragically, this was the American dream. And yet it's a tragedy that the last great work of your life before you give an account before your creator is collecting shells. Lord, Lord, look at my shells. He says it's a tragedy. He contrasts that with a story from April 2000 about two women, Ruby Eliasson and Laura Edwards, who were killed in Cameroon in West Africa. Ruby was over 80 years old. She'd been single her entire life, and she poured her life out for one great thing, to make the love of Jesus known among the poor, the sick, and the unreached of West Africa. And Laura was a widow, a medical doctor, pushing 80 years old herself and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. One afternoon, the brakes failed, and their car went over a cliff, and both of these elderly women were killed instantly. And John Piper says, I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by great one, one great passion, one great love to be spent in unheralded service to the parish and poor, even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on seashells. No, he says, that's not a tragedy. That's a glory. Those are two lives not wasted. Two lives following Jesus. Whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus says will find it and have true life. So there are two things that following Jesus means giving up. It means giving up our right to self-fulfillment. It also means giving up my right to self-rule. Jesus talks about having in mind the concerns of God, not merely human concerns. To follow him means surrendering my own agenda and becoming enveloped in the priorities of Jesus. You know, I, I don't want to shield any of you or to blunt the clarity with which Jesus is speaking in this passage. It's one of the hard things to hear. Jesus is saying there's a part of us that has to die. It has to die in order for us to have life, to respond to his authority as resurrected Lord with a life of self-sacrificial love, giving up my right to rule myself. In verse 24, Jesus says you've got to deny yourself, and that that means doing things you don't feel like doing and not doing things you do. Uh, Ray Cortese 
shares a story about this. Uh, he got an f- email from a friend of his describing his own struggle. This friend says this. He says, I find in my heart a stubborn refusal to submit that puts on boxing gloves. And as I box with glo- God, I know, I know he's going to win in the end. I want him to win, but I can't seem to allow him to govern me without a fight. I remember once when my heart was yelling out at God over all my struggles. I said to God, God, you seem to think you can come in here and be any kind of Messiah you want. You never asked me what kind of Messiah I want you to be. You won't compromise. It says this, it says, I knew as soon as I said it that Jesus was revealing my root problem with him. He seems to want to run things. Sort of like he knows he's God. And I truly wanted Jesus to come to me in my fear and in my extreme grief and ask me how he could help. Why does he want it all? Why can't he just leave me alone and fix up my life? He asked for the one thing I struggle most to give him, which is my life. And I can relate. There have been times where where I have been at the very end of myself and I feel like I don't have more to give and I've known that God is calling me to do something and I don't want to do it and and walking into that room, having that next conversation, dealing with that next thing, confessing that next sin, whatever it is, it feels like dying. I feel like I'm at the very end of my life and to go through with it will destroy what little bit is left of me. Sometimes I think, God, what do I have to left? There's nothing left, God. And God says, Greg, that has to die. That part of you that you're so afraid of losing, that has to die. If that dies, I promise you will come alive with my resurrection power. But you've got to give up your right to self-rule. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, executed by the Nazis in the closing months of the Second World War, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Two things you got to give up, right to self-fulfillment, right to self-rule, but there's a third thing that we have to push into, and it's the thing that we'd rather give up. Following Jesus means learning to push through the feelings of shame that come when you truly follow Jesus. In verse 24, Jesus talks about taking up your cross Now realize Jesus had not yet started really telling them about his cross. He's talking about your cross and my cross. What is the cross? The cross, certainly it was a means of execution, but so was beheading. Uh, The cross was a Roman means of humiliation, of public shaming. And when Jesus says, to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross, he's saying, to follow me, you've got to press into feelings of shame, perhaps extreme shame, and persevere through those in order to learn to live a selfless life in response to my authority. This is why Peter objected so strongly. Jesus says, I must suffer and die and go to Jerusalem and, and be killed. And, and Peter, he's offended by this. He says, no, Jesus is rebuked by Peter. 
Jesus, you're wrong. Jesus, you can't be publicly humiliated and shamed. You are the leader of our movement. If you are publicly humiliated and shamed, then all of the rest of us are going to be publicly humiliated and shamed. We're going to spend the rest of our lives running from that shame. And you expect Jesus to take off his cloak and put his arm around Peter and say, Peter, it's going to be all right, but he doesn't do that. Jesus says, Peter, you're going to have to get over it. You're going to have to face the shame. You're going to have to be acquainted with shame. And you're going to have to learn to scorn the shame on your cross if you're going to follow me. You see, as you believe in Jesus and as you find life in him, there are feelings of shame that are going to work to hinder you from acts of humility and and love. Uh, And yet, as you get the gospel and learn to press through those feelings of shame, you're not going to mind so much being identified with the poor or the mentally ill or the afflicted or the despised. You're not going to mind standing side by side with the scandalous sinner, and you're not going to care if that scandalous sin maybe reflects a little bit on you in people's imagination. You're going to push through the shame because you're going to get the gospel, and you're going to be moved instead by love. You're going to care less about what people think about you, Jesus is saying. You're not going to mind being the biggest sinner in the room. You're not going to mind admitting your own failures to your spouse and to your kids and to your parents and to your coworkers and to your colleagues. You're not going to mind being that successful business person who leaves an appointment in order to drive across town to your wife's office in order to sit down with her during her lunch break and say, Honey, the things I said about you this morning were really hurtful and I'm worried that I really damaged you and I'm really, really sorry, will you please forgive me, while all her co-workers look on gawking. You're not going to mind being in that position. That's shame. Feelings of shame. And as you get the gospel, Jesus is saying, you're going to pick up that cross, and you're going to get used to it, and, and the shame is no longer going to restrain you from love. Because you're going to know, Jesus is covering my shame. Jesus has forgiven my sin. You won't mind doing the menial work. The shame isn't going to stop you. The humiliation isn't going to hinder you. As Jesus endured the cross and scorned its shame, you too are going to be able to scorn the shame and be freed for a life of self-sacrificial, self-abasing love. As shame loses power over you, you'll be free to become self-forgetful in love for God, in love for your neighbor, and in love for your enemies. In South Korea, there are more Presbyterians than there are Presbyterians in North America. And for those of you familiar with Korean uh, Christianity, there is in Korean churches a great pedestal on which they place their pastors. Pastors are treated with great dignity and great honor. Uh, They are treated as something incredibly reverent. And uh, I'm announcing that I'm moving to Korea. But those of you who, I, sorry if I just got your hopes up, a few of you. Uh, but uh, I remember hearing, I remember hearing a story of um, a situation in a Korean church. There was a big conference, and the like, the conference speaker was one of the most respected and honored pastors in all of Korea. Uh, you know, the kind of person who was quoted and referenced, the kind of person that other pastors would reference in in their sermons and, and quote and steal his illustrations. You know, the kind of guy who was treated as somebody very, uh, very honorable and somebody, you know, he was up next to speak and he had about five minutes and somebody, they were looking around for him trying to figure out 
where he was so he could get mic checked and be ready to walk on the podium when they announced him to thunderous applause. And finally they found him. He was in the men's room on his hands and knees picking up dirty and wet paper towels that people had let fall out of the trash can. And when they found him, they were horrified. They said, this is not appropriate. This is not right for you. You were too great a man of honor. And yet, as it dawned on them, what had happened is he had become self-forgetful because he wasn't feeling the shame. He wasn't looking for honor. He was scorning the shame, bearing his cross lightly and freely because the shame wasn't going to hold him back from a life of love. What's it look like to follow Jesus? Giving up our self-fulfillment, giving up our self-rule and pushing through the shame, bearing the cross in order to love God and neighbor. So how is that possible? It's possible, friends, because it's what Jesus did for you. Jesus tells his followers what he has to do here. He repeats it. Notice, depending on your translation, the repetition of of the imperative. He says, I must go to Jerusalem. Jesus says, I must suffer many things. Jesus says, I must be killed. I must, I must, I must. The emphasis here is on the absolute necessity of Jesus dying. There were no other options, Jesus is saying. I have to go to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed. Why did he have to do this? There are two reasons that we could talk about this morning. Uh, the legal necessity and the personal necessity of this. Legally, we miss how necessary the suffering of Christ was uh, on our behalf, and we miss it for a couple of key reasons. You know, I like to think of myself as a decent guy. I pay my taxes. I work hard. I haven't had a speeding ticket in years. I haven't killed very many people. Um, you know, and, uh, and yet that masks the reality that I am a cosmic rebel. Because of the one who I have wronged is the one who holds the cosmos in his hands. Uh, You know, think about who it is against which we have rebelled. If our creator, if my creator made me to live in absolute dependence and worship on him, and if I've instead lived my life independently much of my life, then that is a massive act of passive aggression against the one who rules the whole cosmos. Um, you know, you think about what it is when you, you commit an act against, uh, against somebody. You know, I remember I live in the Central West End. From time to time, there are muggings. And, you know, if somebody mugs a drug pusher and steals his stash and steals his cash, you know, people are like, mm, that shouldn't have happened. That's too bad. But I remember years ago, I think it was the 4100 block of West Pine, a young man mugged the lady, stole her purse, knocked her to the ground, ran off. He later got caught shortly after that. And when uh, the cops uh, told this young man that he had actually mugged a nun, he started bawling because it felt like it was a crime against greater goodness. Imagine infinite goodness, infinite love, and hardening our hearts against that. And that's what we're dealing with when we're dealing with our need. That is why Jesus had to die because that's the forgiveness that we humans need. Jesus said, I must go to Jerusalem because forgiveness always has a price. You know, let's say you've got your nice mid-century modern Harris Armstrong ranch house somewhere in the inner rig suburbs of St. Louis, and in it you've got one of those wonderful mid-century modern, you know, picture windows 15 feet wide, all glass and panels, and under it you've got your sofa and 
and your neighbor's out playing softball with his boy, and his boy throws him a ball, and your neighbor hits that softball right through your mid-century modern Harris Armstrong picture window into your living room, and there's glass everywhere, and a softball monogrammed with your neighbor's initials. Now, a couple minutes go by. Hi, neighbor. Hi. Um, I think I might have knocked my softball over here. I think it's on the couch. And at that point, there are really two options. Your neighbor can pay to restore your mid-century modern Harris Armstrong picture window of your inner ring suburban house. Or you can say, don't worry about it. I forgive you. No big deal. Now, if you choose to forgive your neighbor, then what does that mean with regard to the window? Who is going to pay to fix the window? The window doesn't fix itself. Who's got to pay once you forgive them? You've got to pay to repair your mid-century modern Harris Armstrong uh, window. When we wrong God and he says, I forgive you, don't worry, I'll take care of it, I've got it covered, he then has to pay that debt. And that's what Jesus is doing on the cross when he says, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer many things, I must be killed. He's saying, I have to pay for that softball you hit through the window. I have to be on that cross so that you won't be on that cross. I must go to Jerusalem. It is a legal necessity, Jesus says. It's further a personal necessity. Because you and I, we need love. Even those of us who can stand up and speak in front of people, we still need loving. We need people to care. And Jesus looked upon me, and Jesus looked upon you, and his countenance fell upon you, and he took note of you. He knows you by name. He knows you intimately. He sees your suffering. He sees your weakness. Yes, he sees your propensity to sin. And, and he has compassion on you. See, we were made for love. He sees you. He knows that you need love. He knows you need it emotionally and spiritually and psychologically and physiologically. You need love more than you need oxygen, food, or water. Think of of those studies back from World War II during the London Blitz of of the children who were left alone in the nursery of the hospital because their parents were injured themselves or perhaps dead. And those babies, they started noticing their needs were taken care of. They were fed. They were diapered. They were changed. They were turned but they started noticing their death rate was getting higher and higher. They, were, they, were, they weren't thriving until they started to pick them up and started to bring in people to hold them. And then those babies started gaining weight and those babies started coming back to life because what they needed wasn't just physical provision. What they needed was loving. A thing a child needs to thrive is for somebody to love that child, to be crazy about that child, to put that child's emotional and spiritual and physical well-being above their own. It can be a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a teacher or a godparent or a coach. But someone has to give that child love, and without it, the child cannot thrive. It's a basic fundamental need. And in Jesus is seeing 
us, and he's saying, I see you, and personally, this is personal for me. You need loving, and this loving that you need is, I'm the only one in the cosmos that can love you the way you need to be loved right now, and so I must suffer. I must go to Jerusalem, and I must be killed. This is selfless love, self-sacrificial love, not a consumer love that he does to get love in return, but love he does because he cares for us the experience of one who is willing, willing to die for us. You know, I'm wearing the purple tie today. Um, and I was thinking through even just about, um, you know, the death of, of Prince this, this week. And, you know, one scholar said of, of Prince that uh, as an artist, he sold sex in his lyrics, but as a man, he longed for God. He was raised in a Christian home, Seventh-day Adventist, and you know, I look over the words and I hear the words of somebody who's longing for a love like this that could actually be true. I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something that you'll never understand. I'll never beat you. I'll never lie. And if you're evil, I'll forgive you by and by because you, I would die for you. I'm not your lover. I'm not your friend. I'm something that you'll never comprehend. No need to worry, no need to cry. I'm your Messiah, and you're the reason why. Because you, I would die for you. You're just a sinner, I am told. Be your fire when you're cold. Make you happy when you're sad. Make you good when you are bad. I'm not a human. I'm not a dove. I'm your conscious. I am love. And I really need you to know that you believe I would die for you. Friends, what if it's actually true? What if there's one who truly is our Messiah, who really did show us that kind of love, a Father in heaven who's mad about you, who meets the deepest longings of our souls with an ever-flowing river of life? That's the only way you're going to have that kind of love for your spouse, for your children, for your coworkers, for your enemies is if you've received that kind of loving from Jesus who says, I must die, I must go to Jerusalem, I must suffer many things, I must be killed. I'm going to go back to Fazil. Can we go back to that slide? Though y'all looked at it enough. Fazil from Syria. He got this Facebook threat, death threat to him death threat to his family. After a lot of prayer and counsel from their pastor, Fazil and Azia and their children fled Syria across the border into a neighboring country that had closed its borders because it was full of refugees. And as foreigners and former Muslims, uh, this family was not particularly welcome in their adopted country, but a local church has provided them with a simple apartment during their transition And meanwhile, they have devoted their lives to loving Muslims well, to caring for their needs, to being emotionally present in their lives, to praying for them, and where they're willing, talking about Jesus. Azia says, for us, we love ministering to Muslims. We love it in this area. I visit a house and I tell them I'm from Syria, that I'm from a Muslim background too, and that I believe in Jesus now. I believe in Esau. And she says, some people, they get upset when they hear me say this, but, but all of these people, they're from Syria, and, and they've, 
they're all questioning their faith right now because they've seen such violence overtake their land and a religion that's supposed to be about peace is giving them no peace at all, only threats and fear and trauma. In Syria, she says, they would never hear about Jesus. Nobody would be able to reach them. But here we have the opportunity to show them the love of Jesus. Fazil took out his phone, pulled up his Facebook app, and read that death threat. He posted his reply to the brother called Ali Hamadi. May the peace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ fill your life. And I thank the Lord for your living testimony about me. And I'm proud to declare the Lord Jesus King over my life. And he's the one who made me rich, not in money, but in his Holy Spirit. And I also pray for you and pray for all the people you call weak in soul so that the Lord will open their eyes to the truth of his glory. Jesus says, follow me. I will give you life. Die for me. I will make streams of living water come through you. Jesus takes a man who on one day is trying in vain to kill his brother for the glory of God. And when he sees Jesus, he's instead risking his own life for the very kind of people who want him dead. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the one. You came for us. You went to Jerusalem. You suffered. You died. You had to do it, Lord. It was a personal necessity. You were not willing to live without us. It was not even an option on the table. It was not even a possibility that crossed your heart. You would not have anything stop you from going to your death to pay our debt in our place because it was personal, because you had placed your love on sinners like us. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for your compassion and your mercy. We consecrate the elements on this table, this cup and this bread to you now that you would minister to us the gospel of God, the gospel of peace, and the glory of Jesus, in whose name we now pray. Amen.